The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Holy God, we give you so much thanks for the ability to gather in this place with you today. We ask that we would open our hearts and our minds and our whole selves to you. That we would be open to the message you have for us today. God, the world is so loud and there's so much happening both in devastation and in celebration. And in celebration, we don't really feel celebratory about, maybe. God, we just ask that in the midst of everything happening in the world around us, we would be centered in you. That you would come, that your Holy Spirit would be present with us now, and that we would be empowered by it when we leave this place. And God, we come to you now saying the son, the prayer which your son Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Old Testament, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or watch on the screens. If you want to read it in your pew Bible, it's on page 263. I know that because I had to look it up this morning. Um, and join me in hearing the word as it is written for us today. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and a highly regarded person because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that he, the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a message to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. 
and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went angry. He went away and said, I thought he was surely to come out to me and stand and call the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfor, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleaned? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. As I said, as you just heard, our scripture lesson this morning comes out of the book of Second Kings which can be found in the Old Testament directly behind the book of First Kings. There's two of them. These aren't necessarily super exciting books of the Bible, at least to a lot of us. They're certainly not books of the Bible we read in church all the time. If I'm being completely honest with you, I don't really remember covering this part of the Bible when I was in divinity school. My Old Testament class might have been the most boring class I took in divinity school. Not because the Old Testament is boring, because you shouldn't have Old Testament class at like 5.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> the book of the Bible that we read today is one that is complicated. It's hard to understand. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of different people. There's people with similar names. There's names that we don't know how to pronounce. There's places that we don't know how to locate on a map. And so I wanted to provide a little context for what's happening in the larger story of God in First and Second Kings. Israel is a struggling kingdom. You don't need to read First and Second Kings to know that. That's basically the whole Old Testament. Second Kings served as a sequel to First Kings and depicts for us the downfall of this struggle. Israel is a divided kingdom. Throughout the Old Testament, prophets come to warn people that Israel is at God's judgment and people continuously do not repent and turn away from their evil ways. The kingdom of Israel is repeatedly ruled by wicked people, by evil kings, and even though a few of them along the way are sort of okay, the majority of them lead people away from God, away from the worship of the Lord. These few good rulers sprinkled around, along with God's prophets, cannot stop the nation's decline. In the book of 2 Kings, we see the northern kingdom of Israel eventually destroyed. And then that's followed by the southern king being destroyed by the Babylonians. 2 Kings is, for us, a story of continued fracturing in Israel. A story of corrupt leadership and unheard prophets who were relentlessly trying to say, this is not of God and people not listening, and then things getting worse and wondering why are things getting worse? Isn't this what God wants? And then a prophet says no, and then people don't listen and things get worse again. This should sound really familiar. <laughs> 
Eventually we reach the downfall of Israel, but we're not quite there yet. Today we find ourselves during the time of the prophet Elisha. It's important because it's not Elijah. There's two of them, and Elijah comes first. Elisha is an interesting figure in this story because he doesn't say anything and he doesn't do anything really. He stays in his house. We also today meet a man named Naaman. And Naaman, while central to the scripture, is not actually a person of Israel. In fact, he's the commander of the army of the king of Syria. That is, he's the commander of the enemy army. Naaman is regarded as a great leader. He's an incredible warrior. He has brought honor to his country, to his people, and he suffers from leprosy. And we know from biblical passages that leprosy is not like a desirable thing to suffer from, right? We see in the New Testament people wanting to be healed from it all the time. And what's really interesting about Naaman is that he's somebody who has leprosy and it doesn't result in his exile. And so we have to wonder, what is it about him that means he has leprosy and they're not exiling him? And what it is, is he's a really good warrior. Naaman is really, really good at helping them maintain dominance. And so the rest of society has just kind of looked away from the fact that he's a leper because he's useful. And so long as he remains useful, they'll keep him around. Naaman is an important man. Society overlooks what should make him ritually unclean and would normally stigmatize him because he is an important man. Society needs a great warrior, and Naaman is that. But it would seem that Naaman knows that he has to buy some time. He wants to be made clean. There's some concerns about his leprosy. Perhaps he's concerned that as this disease progresses, he'll eventually lose the status that he has. When he's no longer useful, what will they do with him? If the world is accepting him right now, that doesn't mean that they always will. This disease for Naaman, I'm pretty sure, feels like a weakness. It's a potential downfall for an otherwise infallible man. Naaman has confided about this to his wife, and then his wife tells her servant, and then enters the unnamed slave girl, which I had never even heard of until about a year ago when I did a Bible study about unnamed women of the Bible, and she was a center feature of that. The unnamed slave girl in this story is interesting. She, we know, was brought back from Israel during a raid. She's been kidnapped, she's been enslaved, and she's now a servant to the wife of the leader of the military that brought her out of her country. She's a servant to the wife of the man who's very much responsible for her own enslavement. She, when learning of Naaman's illness, does something really interesting. And that is, at least so far as we know, she doesn't think, praise God, maybe he'll die soon. 
Because honestly, that would be a very understandable reaction to learning that the man who's responsible for what has happened to you is ill, right? I would have that thought. I'm surprised she doesn't. Instead, she offers a cure. She says to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, if he were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he could be cured of his leprosy. She tells them of the God that she serves. She tells them of Israel's prophets, and she tells them that she knows what could make Naaman clean. Perhaps even more strange than the fact that this girl is so willing to share the truth that she knows is that Naaman listens. His wife relays this back to him, and he decides there's something to what this enslaved girl has said. He decides that maybe this other country, this people that they hate, this God that he doesn't serve, maybe there's something to it. And so he asks the king if he can go visit this prophet, the king that he serves, who in some ways seems to serve Naaman. And the king does it. And that is wild, y'all, because we know that there is a record of wars between Israel and Syria. It's described in the previous chapters. It is so bizarre that Naaman could approach the king and say, I think there's someone there that could heal me. Let's do it. And the king agreed. Because this has the potential of ruining whatever peace they have found. And we see that in the king of Israel's response to the king of Syria's letter, when the king of Israel thinks it's a setup. He's wondering, what do they want from me? I can't heal this man. I can't do anything. And if I can't heal their great military commander, they're coming back and it's going to get worse for my people. What happens is that Elisha realizes the king is tearing his clothes, which in the Jewish tradition is a sign of deep mourning. He is ripping his clothing in anguish. And he says, I could take care of that. Send him my way. And so here comes Naaman, this man of great wealth, this man of great control, this man who just seems to have a giant ego. And he rolls up with about a thousand pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold and all this clothing, a massive store of treasure. And he comes with an entourage consisting of horses and chariots and this just massive procession of power. All of this, he puts on this massive show because if there's a prophet in Israel power enough to heal him, Naaman definitely wants to convince this prophet he should do it. Right? And this is like a really nice show. This probably isn't the best parallel, but I think about that scene in Aladdin when he's like trying to introduce himself to Jasmine and he's rolling up on his elephants and things. That's definitely what's happening right now. Naaman is trying to woo Elisha into healing him. He assumes that he's got all the stuff he should need. This would buy any person, right? Instead, Naaman arrives at Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out the door. He's not at all interested in the party that Naaman is throwing. He's not interested in this parade. He doesn't care. He sends a messenger to greet Naaman, and it would seem that he can't even be bothered. 
The prophet dishonors Naaman. He does not show himself. He sends a messenger. He doesn't care about any of the things that Naaman has brought. He's not impressed by Naaman. The messenger offers further humiliation as if Elisha ignoring him isn't enough. There's going to be no special rite of healing. There's going to be no big performance. There's going to be no magical ceremony where this guy does a lot of things with his hands and lays them on Naaman and Naaman suddenly healed and everybody oohs and ahs. All they have told him is go take a bath. The prophet will not meet him and instead the messenger tells him go wash in the Jordan seven times. That's all Naaman gets. Elisha sends him off to the third-rate river cure. There are better waters in Syria. Naaman is outraged. Doesn't Elisha know that Syria has better waters? It has grander rivers. And doesn't Elisha know that Naaman has probably bathed more than once? He's done all the things Elijah is suggesting in better waters than the one Elijah wants him to bathe in. Furious, Naaman slams his chariot door and dramatically drives away. Deeply insulted and perhaps maybe thinking about what he's going to do to Israel next. Again, curiously enough, it's the servants who make a difference. Naaman's servants approach him, calling him father, and ask that he do something else. We see for a second time, with all of his pride and his giant ego and his obnoxious behavior, Naaman still stops and listens to these people. He hears advice from outside the bubble of his privilege. And when his sermons tell him, you would have done any difficult thing he asked you to do, why not just go get in the water? He does it. He treks down the long, steep road to the Jordan Valley. He finds himself at the Jordan, a much lowly, more lowly stream than the ones he's used to. It's less glorious by human standards than the rivers of Damascus, where Naaman usually goes. And it's in these lowly, sad waters, at least sad to him, that Naaman finds healing. While his whole entourage watches, he dips himself seven times in the humble waters, and his skin becomes like that of a young boy. He's healed of his leprosy. And more than that, the scripture goes on to tell us Naaman is changed. There's a deep rejoicing for him. He rejoices in his healing. Not only his skin, but his whole self is remade. He returns home with a new sort of behavior and outlook on life. Throughout this scripture, Naaman is an incredibly obnoxious main character, at least in my opinion. I don't love him. I find him to be really... I find his seeking to be cured of leprosy in order to maintain his status a little questionable. He uses his place of power and wealth and status to get what he wants. He puts on a show. 
The truth is he has a disease that is ruining other people's lives and his hasn't been because he's really good at dominating and hurting other people. He utilizes the king to further his own prerogative. He expects Elisha, this prophet, to bow before him, to honor him, to shower him with healing praise. And when he doesn't get what he wants, he kind of throws temper tantrums. Naaman is angry. He's not the best figure, but he is a really human figure. He's relatable. In some ways, I think he probably reflects back pieces of all of us. There's something to Naaman, though, that I am consistently floored by, and that is, why is it he continuously listens to his servants? Why is it this man of such pride and such importance and such power is continually willing to entertain the things they have to say? Why is it this slave girl, who Naaman was likely a large part of capturing, is invested in his well-being? Why is it the people who serve him call him father? Something very strange is happening in this scripture. These folks with power, folks like Naaman, usually disregard the people below them. And Naaman kind of does at different points during this story. It's strange that Naaman would choose to listen to these people, and it's strange that these people would seek out the best for Naaman. Ultimately, truly, it's those people, the unnamed slave girl, the servants, it's the people whose names we don't even get, who are unwillingly in the position, who are agents of healing and change for Naaman. I'm consistently very perplexed by this. It doesn't make sense. Math does not math to me. I don't understand what is happening in this story. Why do these people seek to help the man who consistently oppresses them, or at least their people, people like them? And who, who this man is, this man who functions out of ego and desire for power and the hope to be invincible, why is it of all people he listens to the lowly? There's something very, very strange about this story. I don't quite understand everything that's happening in it, but the best word for it, I think, is reconciliation. That is, Naaman is healed fully, not only of his leprosy, but hopefully of himself. <laughs> He's given the gift of being forced out of himself. He has really ugly moments and he also has moments of beauty where he's willing to go beyond himself. His money and his power and his prestige don't matter at points during this story, and frankly, I think that's what he needed. He needed someone who wouldn't even come out of the house to entertain him. He needs people to stop him in his tracks. To put it simply, Naaman is healed of being a jerk and that's what he needs. 
He's healed of his privilege. He's healed of the belief that he's more important, more worthy. He's healed of the belief that he is better. This past week, I was talking to some of my pastor friends, and one of them made a really interesting observation. He is much, much smarter than I am, but he also knows a lot more about biblical things than I do. It just lives in his head, and I am very jealous of it because it takes a lot of researching for me to get to the point that he often is already at. But what he pointed out is that an interesting thing about biblical leprosy, and we get a glimpse into that in this scripture, is that biblical leprosy creates a whitening of the skin. As you have leprosy and as the disease progresses, it bleaches your skin. And so Naaman, as he has leprosy, goes from being a person who is darker in complexion to a person who is whiter. His skin is being bleached. And what my friend points out in this story is, as we were talking about it, he said, I think there's something to the fact that when Naaman is cured of his leprosy, he's also cured of his whiteness. And then he said, you should go put that, preach that in your pulpit. And I said, I will, maybe. <laughs> because I needed to process it. There's something too that happens to Naaman in this story, and that is on a whole multitude of levels, he's just cured of the privilege he has. He's cured of, yes, his physical ailments, but also much deeper ailments that he is plagued by. He's cured of privilege. And the interesting part of this is the people who cure him of it are the very people who don't have it. This story tells us several things, and that is that we are all people in need of healing. That people in positions like this slave girl are in need of healing. They're in need of freedom, they're in need of liberation, and people like Naaman are in need of it too. And sometimes it takes both working together and being willing to listen to each other and push each other and stop each other in their tracks to get to the point where you're all healed. We don't know what happens after Naaman is healed. In my head, I like to think he goes home and he sets them free, right? That would be justice in this story if he returned to this girl and let her go back home to the place where he found healing. We don't know that that happens, but we know Naaman is transformed. And so I like to hope that that's what happened. That Naaman didn't go home and find himself functioning out of pride again and say, I'll keep you, you're really useful. This story, friends, is one that, like I said, it's full of, full of strange things. It leaves me curious and confused. But I think something we can get out of it is one that we are probably all like Naaman. That we all have places of pride and ego. And that maybe we can also be like the lowly people in this story. People who are willing to push at those in power who are prideful and difficult and actively causing harm and oppression to move towards doing something else in the world so that we all hopefully might find healing and freedom. Thanks be to God. At this time, friends, I'd like to invite you 
to join me for our communion liturgy, which is found on page 12 in your hymnals. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. <laughs> 